you, ladies. Nice song. Good job. By the way, if you're saved, you're saved by grace. And you're kept by grace, too. Amen? Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. On Sunday evenings, we've been in a lengthy series on Bible doctrine. Actually started it on February 13th of 2022, almost a year and a half ago. Last Sunday night, we finished sequential end times uh, events. Uh, that portion of this series, we talked about the beautiful city of God. And we're not told very much about heaven and what it will be like in eternity. We're mostly only given glimpses of heaven in the Bible, and most of those glimpses are during the coming, coming future seven-year tribulation. And though we're not told much about heaven in eternity, uh, we did spend last Sunday night talking about what we've been told. It will be a great day when we finally see and experience the beautiful city of God, to see the throne of God, to see the tree of life and the river of life flowing through the middle of the golden street. It'll be a, a great day when we explore the new heavens and new earth through the open gates of pearl, but better still, we will be with God Himself and we will behold the face of Jesus, the one who redeemed us from all iniquity by His blood. And as we near the end of this series, I want to spend some time on a couple of practical doctrine applications. You know, actually, if you stop and think about it, it's difficult to, con to know what we consider to be Bible doctrine. The word doctrine just means teachings. And if you stop and think about it, what is the real difference in what we call Bible doctrine and what we call Bible principles and what we call applications of Bible principles that are written in the Bible? And so uh, the terminology is a little fuzzy there. Uh, <laughs> but we have been spending time on Bible teachings. Uh, now, since we began 17 years ago in the UAW next door, I have tried to treat Sunday nights as our church family time. Uh, we purposely, on Sunday nights, we don't have any other ministries going on. We purposely don't have permanent nursery workers on Sunday nights. We rotate people through there. Uh, on Sunday nights, I feel like this is my opportunity to address our church family to teach some deeper things, some more difficult subjects, because you do begin to grow in your faith by the milk of the Word, but people become mature in their faith by not only having milk of the Word, but having meat of the Word as well. Um, now, among the reasons I don't understand uh, otherwise sensible believers canceling Sunday night services is that for the first 20 years of my Christian life when I didn't really do the speaking, Sunday night was my favorite service of the week. Uh, now, I enjoyed them all, and they were all a help to me in some way, but Sunday night was always my favorite service. And it wasn't always convenient, uh, but it was always helpful. And so for the next few weeks, I want to spend some time talking about why we do some of the things we do here as a church. You know, there are some doctrines, some methods some principles that should be in every church uh, because they're from the Bible. There are other things that are in the Bible where God gives each individual church and each individual Christian some liberty to apply them differently. Now, we have no right to throw away the Bible principle, uh, but God gives us liberty to apply that principle a little differently at times and stay true still to the Scriptures. Uh, I do have a question I want to bring up and address tonight 
as we think about some practical applications of doctrine. And, and here's the question. What should we do when we assemble together as the Lord's church? It's a good question. I mean, I know of people who wanted to start a church, and what they did is they went out into the neighborhood around them, and they did a survey, what are you looking for in a church? And then they did that, and they called what they did church. They completely misunderstand when, when the, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And so it really doesn't matter if Christian people or if the community likes what we do when we assemble, in the truest sense, we are not assembling for us directly or for our community directly. We are assembling for the Lord. And so whether you're aware of it or not, as we study the Bible, what we will find is there are some things that the early church did when they assembled. And it makes a lot of sense to me if you and I want to be a biblical church, if we want to truly go back to New Testament Christianity, then what we need to do is find out what they did when they assembled and do that when we assemble. Does that make sense? Amen? And so we're going to spend some time doing that. If you would stand tonight, if you're able to stand in honor of the Word of God, the title of my thought is, This Do When We Assemble. This Do When We Assemble. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Thank you, might be seated. We spent several weeks in this series a long time ago talking about what the New Testament teaches a church is. The word church means called out assembly. The word is used in the New Testament, and most especially by the Lord Jesus Himself, to refer to an assembly of believers. In the strictest sense, the Bible definition of a church is an assembly of baptized believers. And if you were to take that a step farther, you could say uh, an assembly of baptized believers who has a spiritual leader who we call pastor or bishop or elder, and their focus is the mission Christ left his church. Uh, we spent time talking about that. We also spent several weeks in this series about Christ's main purpose for his churches. By the way, there's a lot of purposes for us when we assemble, but the most important things he has for us when we assemble are three things. We call them the Great Commission, to go with the gospel message, to baptize those that believe, and to teach those who believe the things that Christ taught us. That is what we first and foremost are here to do. Now, fellowship, which is a good Bible words, actually 14 times in the New Testament, what today sometimes is murked up by calling it community, fellowship is important. But fellowship is not among the three most important tasks that Christ commissioned His church to do. Worship, though often obscured today through repetitive music, is important, but worship is not among the three most important tasks Christ commissioned his churches to do. And though a lot of churches are focused on secondary things or just one part of the threefold commission, you and I have been entrusted by our Savior if we are going to be his church and to be a church that pleases him, we are instructed to have all three of these things as a part, a main focus of our church. And we spent a lot of time defining uh, 
those things biblically and a lot of time talking about Christ establishing those things as our focus. But in our text tonight, we notice that as believers, we are to consider one another, to inspire or provoke one another to love and good works. Verse 24 says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. To consider means to fully observe, to perceive, to pay attention to the believers around us. Listen, you and I, we best motivate, we provoke them to love and to do more good works in, in, in life by our example. Uh, very little long-term motivation is accomplished by badgering and belittling. belittling. Uh, and you could add nagging to that list. You see, when people uh, see us love more like Christ loved, and when people see us do more good works like Christ would do if He were in our shoes, and especially when we do them for someone, those who we personally love and those for whom we personally do good, understand that provokes them, that inspires them, that motivates them themselves to love and do more good works, which brings up a good question. How do we get exposure to the needs of other believers outside our circle of family and close friends? I mean, understand that Christianity begins in our home. But if your Christianity stops in your home, you stopped it too soon. Uh, how do we get exposure to the needs, the people around us who are not in our family and not our close friends, who need some example of someone loving them and who needs someone to do good works for them? How do we get exposure to that? It's a great question. In fact, in our text, that question is answered in verse 25. We're exposed to the needs of other believers when we assemble together. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if you've been in a biblical church any length of time, it is very common knowledge for you to have heard a hundred times, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And to forsake, of course, means to purposely and intentionally refuse to assemble. Uh, it's sad to me that there's a lot of Christian people who forsake this clear command. We're very familiar with that. We're a lot less familiar with the fact that this was the manner of some even when the apostles lived. That's what it says. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Not as the manner of some will be. And understand, people didn't begin... Christian people didn't begin forsaking assembling uh, of themselves in 2010. Uh, some believers have been forsaking assembling with other believers all the way back to New Testament days. People have never changed. One of the reasons I get so weary of, uh, of people just constantly droning on about how bad it is out there. I get so sick of people doing nothing but lamenting the darkness instead of when we assemble, encouraging us to be light in this dark world. Uh, and by the way, internet and live stream, though they're a wonderful thing for those who cannot physically assemble, uh, they have also enabled some who can assemble to forsake it and to soothe their conscience. Oh, by the way, if you're watching internet or live stream and you physically could be here, we miss you. And as this verse continues on, notice it says, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, a lot of people are not familiar. The Bible very 
clearly says that as the day approaches, as the end days, the last days of the last days, the day when Christ returns and consummates everything, as we see that day approaching, we're not supposed to assemble less. We're supposed to assemble more. By the way, there's a reason for that. Because when we assemble, it provokes one another to love and good works. And when we assemble, it's us exhorting one another and finding mutual strength. I have yet to find the assembly of people who became deeper and more committed Christians by having less exposure to their pastors preaching and teaching of the Bible. I've yet to meet them. Maybe they exist. I haven't met them. But what has happened today, as in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, literally the general tone of American Christianity has been to do the opposite of this, to out of one side of their mouth say, oh, the day's approaching, the return of the Lord is near. Out of the other side of the mouth, they're saying, well, uh, let's get together less. It's the opposite. And what it's done is in general, it has produced the lukewarm and biblically ignorant culture in which you and I live. Uh, We are able to consider one another and exhort one another because we assemble regularly together. We are provoked to love and good works, and we are strengthened by the exhortation that comes to us in these perilous days in which God has placed us. By the way, if you come here regularly, I pray that God would use our assembly to exhort you, to provoke you to love more, to provoke you to do more good for the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, I believe God does that here. I believe it works because it worked in the first century. When they assembled, this all happened. So it brings up the simple question, what did they do when they assembled? It's a great question. By the way, much of American Christianity, and and probably some people here, one of the things that you think is, well, when we assemble, we ought to do something that our culture wants to find. Others here, you probably think, you know what, what I want to do, uh, let's do what I want to do when we want to assemble. So the question really isn't what you want or our world wants. The question is, what does the Lord want and what is written for us that we ought to be doing when we assemble? It's a great question. Please first go in your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. What did the first century Christians do that encouraged and challenged and exhorted them? What did they do when they assembled? Uh, By the way, most of this is pretty basic. I I hope you understand that teaching the Bible, we have people all over this room, Uh, that are in all kinds of places in life. We have some pretty mature and knowledgeable people in here, thank God. We have some people who are pretty new in their faith. And so if you're new in your faith, uh, I want to encourage you to understand that the things we do here, we do on purpose. And for those of you who are more seasoned, what I want you to do is I want you to see from the Bible that when we assemble, what we do is we do the same things they did in the first century. Here's the first thing they did. Number one, they preached and taught the Word of God. (laughs) Acts chapter 20, verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came 
unto them in Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, so what did the disciples do on the first day of the week? They came together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech unto midnight. By the way, this is a Sunday night service. And Paul preached a long time. Listen, if I preach to midnight, it, <laughs> you wouldn't be back next week. Our nursery workers wouldn't be back for sure. Verse 8 says there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together and there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being falling into a deep sleep. By the way, I'm not the only preacher to put people to sleep. Paul put people to sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and he fell down from the third loft, was taken up dead. Now that's a pretty eventful evening service. Verse 10, Paul went down. You can see the church and all these people rushing down. Paul went down, fell on him and embracing him and said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And when he was therefore come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. Yeah, they were a lot comforted. This evening service, they preached the word. Uh, listen, I know it is not as true in American Christianity today as often as it should be or to the depth it should, but understand preaching and teaching of the Scriptures should occur whenever we assemble. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because, Lord willing, I'm going to do a future message on the importance of preaching as we talk about some practical things. I will just say this. We're not wasting our time when we spend 30 to 40 or 45 minutes preaching, teaching the Bible every time we assemble. So, well, Brother Wally, if you preach the Bible for 40 minutes, you know the community is not going to come. Hey, listen, listen. The preaching and teaching of the Scriptures has always attracted some people. There will always be a remnant of people interested in the Word of God. Now, they didn't just preach the Word. There was, fellowship, there was a fellowship meal that night, and they talked together after the message. In verse 7, uh, they came together uh, to break bread. And notice in verse 11, when he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even to the break of day. So he departed. So they preached for a long time. They uh, ate dinner together, and then they talked for the rest of the night, and then Paul left. Uh, they didn't just preach, they had a fellowship meal. Now there's some people who say the breaking of bread uh, there in verse 7 is the Lord's Supper. But verse 11 makes clear that they broke bread and when they had eaten. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 11 that you are not supposed to uh, attach the Lord's Supper to a meal. And so Paul didn't in Troas do what he forbade in Corinth. Uh, that breaking the bread, they had a, a meal together. And, and by the way, we still do that. Now, we used to do it a lot more uh, a few years ago when it was a little easier to prepare the food and seat us, but we still do it. We do it as classes. We do it as a church. Our teens do it all the time. We do it on purpose. We have dessert fellowships all the time. Uh, it's a good thing. Um, many of us come early to talk. Uh, many of us stay late to talk. By the way, uh, one of the things that I would strongly recommend to you is to come early and stay late. You will never build relationships just coming and singing when we sing, uh, praying when we pray, 
listening to the preaching when I preach and teach, and then leaving. Now, you can do that. I'm not angry at you. But understand that a part of what we do, in addition to preaching the Bible, is we talk to one another. We hang around. Uh, By the way, congregational singing is not intended to be the time when we talk. I'm just going to let that sit a minute. I ex- I actually, I just suggest anybody, if you want to be exhorted to love and good works, invest some time talking before and after service. Listen, get in a Sunday school class. Show up early. We have eight adult Bible classes. Get involved in a ministry. Be committed. Come early to church. Uh, get your children out of the nursery on time and then hang around after the service is over. Uh, when, I, when I got saved 39 years ago, I didn't have any family or friends in the church. Uh, it was difficult. And I understand it, it takes time and effort to build relationships and to invest yourself. But I, I just want to encourage you to do that because that's what they did in the early church and it'll help you. It's worth the investment. Now, depending on our gifts and our personalities, you may or may not find it easy to love the preaching of the Word. Now, probably if your spiritual gift is mercy showing, uh, you struggle to uh, love somebody preaching and teaching hard and clear. Uh, if your uh, gift is prophecy or teaching, you, you probably find it really easy to do that. But whether we find it easy or hard, understand that God gave the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures for our good. What that actually means in practical terms is we're going to hear a lot of the same truths over and over and over again. I don't know if you've ever paused to think about this, but probably the Bible is actually maybe 20, maybe 25 main subjects that God just repeats over and over and over from different angles, different perspectives, bringing in different details, and then He illustrates them through the stories of people. Uh, Listen, God does it on purpose because those truths, when we understand them more deeply and when we more deeply apply them, we're better off. By the way, there would be something wrong if you're a seasoned Christian and you came here and every time you came here, I had something brand new to you. One of two things is going on. Either you are not someplace where you were being taught what you should have been taught or there's something wrong with the subjects I'm preaching. Uh, If you've been around church at all, this morning when I preached on the omnipresence of God, probably none of that should have been new to you. It was literally just an old truth that's a foundational truth that we just need to be reminded of. God did that on purpose. There's a reason the wise man said there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. Let me ask, are you allowing yourself to appreciate and grow to love the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures? Uh, The preaching and teaching of the Bible is part of what exhorts us and provokes us to love and good works when we assemble. What is it that first century Christians did when they assembled and that exhorted them and encouraged them? Go back a few chapters to chapter 4. For any of you who wondered why we do what we do and why we don't do what our culture wants us to do, this is why. I want Bible Baptist Church to be a church that pleases Jesus. And I think you do too. 
The second thing they did when they assembled is they prayed. Notice in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, it says, and being let go, they were let go from the Jewish leaders who were persecuting them. It says they went to their own company. That means they assembled together with the other believers and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and they said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. And he goes then into the prayer that they prayed together. They prayed together. The problems they were having moved them to pray when they assembled. They didn't assemble for a pity party. They didn't assemble to plot an armed takeover. <laughs> they did pray in one accord. See, they were in full agreement that they needed God's intervention and strength to stay at their purpose. Notice as their prayer closes in verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy service that it would all go away. I'm sorry, that isn't what it says, is it? They had a purpose that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they all went home and kept the message to themselves. That isn't what it says, is it? They spoke the Word of God with boldness. Hey, listen, when we pray as a church, uh, we are not praying to escape all the difficulties of life or our faith. We're praying for strength from God to move forward and keep doing what he sent us here to do. Uh, there's a reason we pray in our service. Neil prayed tonight. There's a reason we pray during the invitation. There's a reason we pray to close out before making announcements. There's a reason we have special altars of prayer for big events. There's a reason that I call our church to prayer and fasting before our revival meetings. There's a reason uh, we have our adult classes uh, get their class together for special prayer. There's a reason myself and our deacons and staff at times have prayed all night together. The reason is simple. We cannot do the work of God in our own strength. As a church, when we pray, we acknowledge that God's work cannot be done in our strength. We never get big enough, skilled enough, or educated enough to do God's work in our strength. Did you hear me? If you've been around for a while and done your ministry for some time, you have a routine, you have some things you can do in your strength. But understand, you will never do God's work in your strength. Our adversary is too strong for any of us as individuals or all of us together, but he is not too strong for the Lord. Let me ask you, do you participate in any of the prayers we have as a church? Or is that just something for other people? When I asked you to pray and fast, when we had our vacation Bible school and five backyard Bible clubs, did you do anything with that? When I asked you to pray for junior camp two weeks ago or the teens this past week, did you do any of that? If not, why not? Do you realize prayer is so important that without our prayers, the people who are actually in their teaching and preaching, listen, they need that strength from God. They need us to pray. Do you pray? 
praying together is a part of what exhorts and provokes us to love and good works when we assemble, but that isn't all they did. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. When they assembled. They preached and taught the Word. They prayed. Here's the third thing they did when they assembled. They sang together. Do you sing? I I don't want to tell you what I see when I look out. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Notice in verse 19, speaking to yourselves, plural, not just yourself. This is something Paul is instructing the believers in the city of Ephesus to sing together psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Make melody in our heart to the Lord. Uh, He said, what happens when we do that? Turn up just a few pages to Colossians chapter 3. Our singing together, it's not just time filler. It's something that the first church did. That's why we do it. It's on purpose. Now, if you never, ever sing, ever, anytime, anywhere, any kind of music, and you don't sing, I still blame you, but I don't blame you as much. But if you ever sing at any time, anywhere, for anything, and you don't sing in church, something's wrong. Colossians chapter 3. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Notice this is uh, to one another. This is not talking about you and I singing in the shower or as we go through our day, though you're singing good stuff, that's fine too. Uh, Notice what happens when we sing together. It teaches and admonishes us. (laughs) Uh... There's very little teaching or admonishment in what is taught today called worship music that repeats the same few words over and over again. Not only is there a lack of instruction and warning in this shallow, repetitive music, it is also completely different from the 150 inspired songs that are in the Bible. I'm not talking about music tonight, don't have time for that, But I want to just warn you, when anybody says that these repetitive songs they call worship music is superior, just ask them why none of the psalms are like that. I'll just say amen for myself. The point for tonight is simply this. You know, when we get together, we're supposed to sing. (laughs) Uh, We purposely do a lot of singing here. Uh, When people come here from other conservative Churches, a lot of times, they're like, wow, you guys sing a lot. So why do you do that? Well, back 17 years ago when we started the church, I felt like the, church, the Bible was more focused on singing than listening to singing. Now, there's both singing and listening to singing in the Bible, but I feel like it's more focused on singing, and so we do sing a lot on, on purpose. 
I don't believe a church has to sing six songs like we do to be a biblical church, but I do believe a biblical church sings when they assemble psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. Uh, Let me ask you, do you make any effort to sing with your heart when we sing? It's part of what God uses to provoke us to love and to good works and to exhort one another, you are missing something that God intends to do in your life through that portion of our service by singing with your heart, by thinking about what we're singing about. I've known several people over the years, they basically didn't even want any singing, they just wanted to assemble to preach. And on first glance, that sounds real spiritual, but it's actually unbiblical. The fact of the matter is, is there was singing in the New Testament, there was singing in the Jewish temple, and there's singing in heaven. And so when you come to Bible Baptist Church, we sing. And I wish you'd quit visiting with your neighbor when we sing. Amen. Uh, listen, I have to see so many things that, that go on. Uh, you would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't. Uh, whoever it is that cuts your fingernails. Please at least pick them up. Singing exhorts us to love and good works. But the church did more than teach and preach the Bible, pray and sing. We don't have time to look at that. But they, uh, number four, they gave and collected money. But I do want to pause and look at one last thing briefly. Go to Acts chapter 1. See, some people say the church is all about money. And by the way, some churches might be. We're not here. But our giving is part of what we do when we assemble because it's part of what the early Christians did when they assembled. There's a reason that we tithe to the storehouse, the local church where God has placed us. There's a reason that we give offerings to missions and to reduce our building uh, principle, and we give offerings to uh, help teenagers go to camp, and we give offerings to people all, uh, listen, we've taken offerings for all sorts of things. We had one of our missionaries one time, uh, his daughter, uh, his son-in-law shot her and then killed himself. Uh, we took an offering, and we sent that to fly that young lady back to be with her parents to get better. We, we Listen, you say, what benefit did we get from that? We don't do everything we do to benefit us. And that's why in the New Testament, they didn't just uh, take tithes for themselves. Listen, they sent offerings to Jerusalem to support the poor saints in Jerusalem. But the last thing I, I want to just plant deeply in our mind, because they not only assembled to preach and teach the Bible and to pray and to sing and to uh, give, uh, lastly, they made an effort to remain in one accord. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Now we could go through the book of Acts. The phrase one accord occurs 13 times in the New Testament. Seven of those are associated with Christian assembly, and six of those are in the book of Acts. That early church stayed in one accord when they assembled. Hear me when I say this. No one stays in one accord with their spouse, their family, their friends, 
or the assembly of believers where Christ has placed them without purposely choosing to do so. Now, the best of my knowledge is a church tonight, we're in one accord. To the best of my knowledge. You say, well, I'm mad at so-and-so. Good for you. Good for you. Listen, the early church worked through the difficulty of picking a new leader. They picked Matthias. They stayed in one accord. The early church worked through key leaders, uh, hypocrisy, hypocrisy so bad that God killed Ananias and Sapphira in their presence. And the young men wound him up and took him out and buried him. But they stayed in one accord. That issues with how the money was being distributed to widows. Widows, by the way, that were most likely widowed because of persecution that brought their husbands to the grave. They had disagreements over that, but they remained in one accord. They worked through problems of all sorts. They worked whether, through the problem of whether Saul of Tarsus would be welcomed. They worked through all sorts of things. And they worked through them because they loved Christ and they loved one another and they had the one sure foundation in the church upon which we can remain in one accord. And to be in one accord, we need a sure foundation and that foundation is the basic truths of the Scriptures. We don't have to agree on everything tonight. I am not the belief police. But we do need unity on, hum, on key things. And if you don't have unity on key things, you need to have a humble and enough spirit to be quiet. Because we are to be in one accord. If we want to be in one accord, we need to decide to be big enough to forgive like Christ forgave us. To forgive like we wish others would forgive us when either we or our children fail. I'll tell you right now, if you don't know me well, sooner or later, I'll disappoint you and I will need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. It's going to shock you uh, because I know the perfection with which you live your life, but sooner or later, I'm probably going to be disappointed in you. And you're going to need my forgiveness. We don't stay in one accord because we all handle everything perfectly. In fact, none of us handle everything perfectly. I don't purposely make mistakes, but I don't perfectly handle my job. I need your mercy. And you don't perfectly handle your job and you need my mercy. We don't stay in one accord because there are no problems. We don't stay in one accord because we have no disagreements. We don't stay in one accord because of any of those things. We stay in one accord because we purposely decide to, because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, because we love one another, and we understand that what goes on here is way more important than any of our petty bickering and disagreement that happens on a regular basis because a church is filled with people. Let me ask you, are you a peacemaker or a divider? Are you someone who's big enough to forgive or do you stir up strife? Do you realize in Proverbs 6, God gives us what we might call his hate list. Says these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. He starts out a proud look, then he goes to a lying tongue, then a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. He finishes that list up with something you and I would never put on the list of things God hates. 
He that soweth discord among brethren. God hates sowing discord. Brother Wally, who do you have in mind? I ain't got anybody in mind. If I had somebody in mind, I would personally find you before or after service, and I would look you in the face, and I would talk to you about it. If the Spirit of God has you in mind, for being someone who sows discord in the youth ministry, or discord among the children's ministry, or discord among those who sing specials, can I ask you just simply in Christ's stead, stop it, please. Just stop it. Because we want God to bless what we do here. He's not going to bless when we don't purposely do what we can to stay in one accord. Amen? You quietly stand.